Welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast with Hal Elrod. I'm your host, Nick Falkowski, and you're listening to the show that is guaranteed to help you take your life to the next level faster than you ever thought possible. In each episode, you will learn from someone who has achieved extraordinary goals that most haven't. He is the author of the number one best-selling book, The Miracle Morning, a Hall of Fame business achiever, an international keynote speaker, ultra-marathon runner, and the founder of VIPSuccessCoaching.com, Mr. Hal Elrod. Achieve Your Goals podcast listeners, hey, it's Hal Elrod, and uh, today I have a, a really a special treat for you. This is something I've thought about doing and, and really intended to do for a long time long time and today finally the stars have aligned for a few different reasons and so you're going to get a special treat in that you're going to get a an actual episode a module of the best year ever coaching program uh, if you're not familiar with that john Berghoff and i run a group coaching program known as best year ever coaching and i've run it for about three and a half years i brought john in to increase the value and up level the whole program about a year ago and uh, I thought about using one of our episodes, or you know, it's a paid program, but giving you a, kind of a taste of it for free, and it just so happens I'm camping in the mountains right now for the 4th of July. Uh, I don't have a good internet connection. I'm very limited on what I can do with audio right now, and so it, you know, it's, a, it's a win for me in terms of convenience, and it's a win for you because you're going to get uh, what I feel like is the most powerful call that we've run, the most powerful best year ever coaching call that we've run this year so far in 2016. It's actually, this is run by John Berghoff, and uh, it's called Emotional Intelligence 3.0, How to Transform Your Results Through Your Relationships. And the feedback for this particular call was arguably the best feedback we've ever gotten, uh, or some of the best feedback, I should say. And I'll give you an example. One of our best year ever coaching members, Paul Cantu, this is what he said. Uh, he, he posted in the Facebook group, our, our members-only group for the best year ever coaching program after the call. He said, what an awesome call today with John Berghoff. So many takeaways from today on emotional intelligence. Really grateful for the understanding I gained from being on this call and feel as though I can put many of the practices in use immediately, both in my personal and professional relationships. Thank you, John, exclamation point, exclamation point. So uh, you are absolutely in for a treat. Now, by the way, pause this recording if you haven't done so. You can actually download the uh, handout for this call. So there's always a handout for our best year ever coaching uh, calls. You can download the handout for the call in the email that I sent out announcing the call. It'll also be at the show notes page if you go to halelrod.com forward slash podcast and look at episode, I believe this is 132, it's the most recent episode, and, uh, and you can get the show notes and click the link to download the handout to complete while you listen to the audio. If you're driving, don't worry about the handout, keep your hands on the wheel, keep driving, and uh, if you are interested in checking out the Best Year Ever Coaching Program, we actually have a $1 trial right now. You can go get a uh, seven-day trial for the, of the program, see if it's a good fit for you for $1, and that's at bestyearevercoaching.com. Net. That's best you're ever coaching. Dot net. Uh, with that said, I will leave you to enjoy and get uh, incredible value from John Berghoff with Emotional Intelligence 3.0. So the topic for this particular best year ever coaching call is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, and I do feel like it is a bit of a bold, audacious 
uh, goal of my own to be here with you today and to talk about emotional intelligence. And I say that because emotions are a topic to me that on one hand are kind of a mystery. Um, I think that emotions are complicated. I think that emotions are very much a part of uh, ev- our moment-by-moment moment experience of life as human beings. And, and so in no way do I want to claim that what we're going to do today is have you get off the call and you will fully be able to master every aspect of managing your emotions, the people around you, and the entire universe of emotions. Um, Maybe that'll happen. If it does, let me know, and that's great, right? But I don't think that's going to happen. But what I am excited about around this topic is the impact that it can make when we become more aware of the role that emotions play, and we begin to understand some very simple, practical ways of gaining, of of moving from being aware to actually managing with that awareness in mind. I can tell you from personal experience, I can think back, gosh, maybe 16, 17 years now, um, when I first was introduced to the idea or the importance of being able to manage our emotions. I was just a young sales rep selling Cutco, as many of you know. And uh, I'll never forget some of the early lessons that I was taught about the value of being able to understand and work with our emotions. And what's interesting is that was 17, 18 years ago. And I fast forward to today and I think about for myself in my life and I think about many of the mentors and the teachers that I've had and whether or not it was consciously spoken about, I realized that the ability to work with our emotional intelligence is one of the most liberating and one of the most empowering skill sets that we can develop. In fact, there's some things I'm going to share today that are not on your handout. So if you have a pen handy, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is unscripted, and so I don't always know where we're going to go. And I'm realizing right now it might help to give all of you a little bit of a historical perspective on the concept of emotional intelligence. So let's break intelligences into three types of intelligence. And by the way, if you study or research the idea of multiple intelligences, you'll find that there's there's thinking out there that says that there's all different types of intelligences. But I like to actually think of them as three different types of intelligences. Historically, we've known for a long time that there's a way of measuring our intelligence that we call IQ. In other words, it's our intellectual capacity. And there's a few things about IQ that are worth noting. Um, and I would encourage you to research this on your own. I'm, I'm not reading this off of any notes that I have, so don't hold me to this as an exact scientific or historical explanation of IQ. It's just my recollection of what I've learned over the years. But one of the things that's interesting about IQ, our intellectual capability, is that it is very well accepted that our IQ is something that, is, that doesn't necessarily change a lot in our lifetime. Um, our IQ is something that many people believe you can measure it when you're young, and while you might be able to strengthen your neural capacities, your capacities within your brain, our IQ is actually something that generally stays fixed. And I'm not here to debate whether that's true or how true it is, but that is a widely accepted understanding around our intellectual capacity. Um, There is an interesting kind of trivia point on IQ. Our IQ 
uh, as across all of humanity collectively as far back as they have data on this, and I think it goes back maybe 60 or 70 years, has been increasing uh, every 10 years. It has increased collectively. So I guess that's good news, right? We are actually all getting a little bit smarter. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, the positive psychology movement, which was spearheaded by a guy named Martin Seligman, was born. And Martin Seligman, when he, he was already a kind of a figurehead in the field of psychology, and when, when he was asked to become the leader in the space of psychology, you know, he took a step back and he said, hey, I've got a major problem with the entire field of psychology. And he said, my problem is if you look back, you'll find that most of the research, most of the studies, most of the publications on psychology are all about studying problems and what's wrong and what's broken. And so he is actually the single person who kind of um, drew a line in the sand and said, let's change that. Let's start to study what works. Let's study happiness. Let's study positivity. And that was, that was right around the year 2000. And right about the same time, there was a guy named Daniel Goleman. And Daniel Goleman, um, he wrote a number of books on emotional intelligence, but he wrote one particular book called Primal Leadership. And Primal Leadership, it's a book I'd encourage any of you that are listening right now to go check out at some point. Um, but Primal Leadership was really the introduction to the world of emotional intelligence and, and the role that it plays as a leader and how important it is. And you'll find in that book uh, that there's an abundance of research that's been done that has proven that our emotions have a major impact on every single outcome in our world professionally. Now, that's a big, bold claim to make, but, and you don't have to believe me. I'm just telling you, go look at the research. Um, there's one study that has shown, I think they, they went around the world and they evaluated groups of people that worked together. And they found that it didn't matter industry, organization, size of business, didn't matter the country or culture. They found that uh, if you look at a group of people, that their emotions over time will harmonize, that their emotions over time will start to align with each other. And then they also found that the leader of an organization or of any group of people um, had a really significant measurable impact on the long-term emotions of that group. And then if you connect that to all the data and all the research that tells us that, hey, look, if you are actually able to become more aware and more capable of managing your emotions – we now know empirically without a shadow of a doubt that our performance as entrepreneurs, as individuals trying to achieve our goals, will go up. And there's some fill-in-the-blanks on your handout. I don't know if they're actually left as fill-in-the-blanks or not. If they are, I'll tell you what they are. There's, there's one set of uh, research that talks about how top performers that have uh, – or 90% of all top performers have a really high emotional intelligence. Another set of research talks about – how emotional intelligence is responsible for 58% of your job performance. And then there's another statistic that, again, is just a fill in the blank there, that people with a high emotional intelligence make $29,000 annually more than their counterparts, same role, same function, same job, um, who have a lower level of emotional intelligence. And the research goes on and on and on. If you want to investigate it on your own, I just wanted to take just a minute before we started to tell you that this idea of emotional intelligence, it's a big one, and it's important. And our ability to grasp it is significant in achieving our goals and having our best year ever and making a quantum leap. And I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today.
any questions that you have, please jot them down. You can bring them to me at the end of the call, and I will gladly help if I can, and I'll gladly tell you if I have no idea how to help you around this topic. So uh, if you have your handout in front of you, there's some kind of foundational frameworks that I want to teach today around emotional intelligence, and I'm actually combining several different teachings, and I'll tell you where all of these came from for me, um, <clears throat> and so that you can start to understand what is emotional intelligence, and what does it mean to actually have competency or skills in the areas of emotional intelligence. So Daniel Goleman, who kind of made this concept uh, popular, he brought it to the world and he brought it to the business world. He has a framework, and he calls it the Emotional Intelligence Competency Model. And I'll tell you right now, if you Google it, you'll find a million different explanations of it. I'm actually going to give you um, a, a variation, my variation of explaining it. And I, I have been very privileged, and it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this topic, in that uh, when I attended a business school, an executive MBA program here at Case Western through their School of Management, um, I was... Uh, I had an experience where I showed up to one of my classes, and the class was about leadership across an organization, and the professor's name was Richard Boyatzis, and I remember thinking, God, I feel like I heard that name years ago, and I'll tell you a crazy story. So I go home from my first, the first day where I had Richard, Dr. Boyatzis is one of my professors, and I go to my library, and I find a cassette tape series. It tells you how long I've, I've owned you know, this content. And it was the cassette tapes for the book Primal Leadership. And I look on the cover of the cassette tapes, and I see that Daniel Goleman, who's often credited as like the inventor of emotional intelligence, um, he co-wrote that book with none other than Richard Boyatzis. I actually brought the tapes in and showed them to him. He's like, I've never even seen these. Uh, but it was really cool for me to be, to be mentored. There's only 19 people that were in that program by a guy who like 13 years ago was pivotal in my personal development. So this model, this emotional intelligence competency model, is a great way of understanding emotional intelligence. If you have your handout, I'll walk you through it. If you don't, it'll still be easy to follow along. The model is very simple. It starts with the end in mind, which if you're looking at it on the handout, the, the square, if you'll see there's kind of four boxes. The box on the far right or the top right, if you want to fill in that blank, the word that we're filling that in with is relationship, relationship. In other words, the emotional intelligence model basically says that, look, the name of the game is our ability to manage relationships with other people. And if you stop and you think about it, this is obvious, right? If you think if you're in sales, your capabilities of relating with others, there's nothing more important, right? If you lead others in any fashion, whether you have a team of one or a thousand, your ability to manage those relationships is essentially your most important capability. You could argue that, right? So the emotional intelligence model says, hey, look, the name of the game is the ability to manage your relationships. And the remainder of the model, if you follow it on the handout or just follow what I'm saying, kind of explains what is the role that emotions play in helping us to be exceptional at managing our relationships. So the box that comes right before that or the step that comes right before that, if you had to think of it as four steps in a sequence, if the final step is the ability to manage relationships, the step that comes right before that is what we would call social awareness, social awareness. And what Daniel Goleman taught the world uh, years ago is that you can actually measure this and you can actually develop this skill set 
that our ability to be socially aware is, has a direct correlation on our ability to actually manage relationships. Now, let's stop here and think about what did that really mean, social awareness? Well, let me just give you a quick, simple explanation. Social awareness, a good way of thinking about it, it's simply the ability to empathize with others. It's the ability to be aware of somebody else's feelings and emotions, right? And the more aware we are of that, and I think about myself and just examples in my world, and I think about how every single day my awareness of how somebody else feels. I think about it with my wife or with my kids and how if I'm not aware and I'm not sensitive to how they're feeling, what happens is by lacking that awareness, my choices of how to interact in that moment might completely miss the mark on what's really needed. In a professional setting, I sit in meetings all the time, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this. You know, you might be in a meeting with one other person and you might realize, wow, you know, this person has a certain energy about them that just doesn't quite feel right, right? Well, if you've had that happen, that's an example of social awareness. What I'm going to encourage you to think about today is I want you to imagine that the ability to detect and to distinguish and to discern what's going on with somebody else, it's not like a yes or no, it's not an either or, it's not a binary thing. It's not, yeah, I either know what's going on or I don't. I would like to tell you that it's a sliding scale and that it's an infinitely, uh, perpetually, um, it's a never-ending sliding scale. In other words, yeah, it's one thing to just feel that something's going on with somebody, but it's another to actually be able to label it or to be able to discern how intense it is. Or more importantly, and even more complex, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this, especially if you're an entrepreneur or a business setting or even just any social setting, when you enter into a group environment, now all of a sudden you have all of the complexity of one human being multiplied by everybody. And I can tell you that when I go into a room, and and this is kind of my life right now, I'll walk into a a leadership team, and I'm there to facilitate. uh, It could be as few as 10 senior leaders of an organization, and it could be as many as 40 to several hundred people in one room. Um, When I run the Best Year Ever event, I'm literally trying to detect the collective emotions of the room. And I'm trying to recognize that in my role, whether I'm the facilitator, the communicator, the presenter, the leader, that I have a lot of power and I have a lot of influence uh, in shaping how the emotions in that room will evolve. And I I want to invite all of you today to recognize that one of the fastest ways to be better at influencing groups of people of any size is to be able to tap into your own emotions because at the end of the day, there's a lot of science that has proven this to be true. When, when you or when I step in front of a group, within the first 30 to 60 seconds, um, an emotional resonance has been set. In other words, uh, if, I have, if I project a certain sort of confidence or a positivity or a lightheartedness um, or an, a level of inspiration just to be there, Within a minute or so, the rest of the group does not have a choice but to actually take on and adopt a lot of my emotions. And again, that might sound crazy and like this pie-in-the-sky idea, um, but I will tell you all day long, there is a never-ending abundance of research that has proven it to be true. And so being socially aware is about recognizing the power that we have and recognizing that whatever's going on with other people We need to be aware of it, and then we need to be willing to try and do something with it. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. I just want to lay this groundwork first, and I just want to invite you to make it a priority when you step into a room 
to become aware of the emotions of others. In fact, I'm going to go totally off script. Um, this is all off script, but I'm going to go totally off script, and I'm going to tell you about something else really interesting that neuroscientists have just discovered in the past few years. I know this because they're doing this right here at Case Western. In fact, Richard Boyasis is the head of this research. One of the things that he has found is that uh, when two people are in a conversation, or two or more people, it doesn't matter, when the conversation is focused on a task, so as an example, we say, okay, what's our goal? What are we working on? Uh, what are the problems to be solved? What are, the, you know, what are the finances of the situation, the economics? In other words, when we get task-focused, we, we go into a certain part of our brain. Here's what's really interesting, and we literally have been doing MRI scans to, to prove this. And, and there's actually, you could find a little bit about this research online right now, but it hasn't yet been publicized. Um, but if you're here as the best year ever coaching member, you heard it first, and you can remember that. Um, but what we now know, and this has always been believed to be true, but now it's being proven through uh, brain imaging during conversations, is that when we're focused on a task, when we're working on a business problem uh, or some sort of transactional conversation, the part of our brain that has all of our relationship building or strengthening capabilities, in other words, the parts of our brain that are able to be socially aware and able to manage relationships, they actually temporarily shut down. They temporarily shut down. Now, you might be wondering, well, that doesn't sound good. If that's true, then, you know, why is it that our relationships don't all fall apart? Well, because what happens is in the brain, we actually go back and forth between the task network in our brain and the relational networks in our brain. And one of the things that we have found, and we know this to be true, is that if we start off too much in the task mode, what happens is we can become incapable of moving back into the relational mode. And why is this important? Because many of us, and I can relate to this, oftentimes we'll step into a meeting or a business setting or even a family relationship. And the first thing we want to do is just tackle the problem. The first thing we want to do is talk about what's going on, right? It's oftentimes with a spouse, we can get into this rut where it turns into like a business relationship where everything's transactional. Hey, who's going to pick up the kids here and what are we doing for dinner? But here's the problem. Those task-oriented conversations, they are disabling momentarily the relational uh, modes in our brain. And so one of the things that we know is that if we want to make sure that we're honoring the relationship and the relationship-building necessity within our relationships, we actually are far better off if we start off on the relationship side of the conversation. If we start off by honoring how does somebody feel right now, and we start off by checking in there and by, saying, and by starting from a place that might make the mood a little bit more inspiring or aspirational, um, or just connected to how people feel versus too quickly going into the task. The brain does have the ability to back, uh, bounce back and forth between the two, but I just want to make the point that it is very common, especially in a business environment, especially for entrepreneurs, where all day long you're trying to manage tasks to swing the pendulum too far and to not realize, hey, you know what? If I'm spending all day drilling through tasks and working my ass off, um, I might actually be leaving a trail of terror with my relationships and I don't even realize it. So this has a lot to do with social awareness. The reason I just shared all that with you is because what I want to do is make sure that this community, this group within this coaching program becomes a group that realizes, look, we have to acknowledge the importance of being socially aware because if we're socially aware, 
we now completely elevate our ability to perform anywhere where humans are involved. And, uh, you know, I don't know about all of you, but I, I haven't found a way to pull humans out of the equation. Um, let me finish telling you about the emotional competency model. It starts with relation, or it finishes with the ability to manage relationships. What is it that allows us to manage relationships? Social awareness. Now, that part of the equation is all about other people, and so all of you probably already figure out what does the first part have to do with has to do with ourselves. So if you're filling in the blank, the second step in this sequence is our ability to actually manage ourselves, right? And so what is the capability that allows that? And that's the first fill in the blank or the first step in the sequence. It's what we would call self-awareness. So I'll just one time walk you through this emotional intelligence model, you know, from self-awareness, that awareness enables us to manage ourselves that ability to manage our own emotions and our thinking, that's what allows us to become socially aware. And that social awareness is what allows us to be competent or even excellent at managing relationships. What's really interesting is when you look at this model, it kind of shines a spotlight on something that you can't ignore. And it shines a spotlight on the reality that it all starts with our own emotions. And we can't ignore that. And I kind of hinted at that earlier when I talked about some of the research that has proven that not only do groups align collectively with emotions, but they, they also will follow the emotions of a leader. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about here is what does this mean to actually become more self-aware? Now, Juliana Ray, who is a dear friend and a mentor and someone who we have introduced to this community in the past and uh, probably will again soon, um, is, a, is a leading teacher and thought leader on the topic of mindfulness. She's been an apprentice for 19 years um, beneath Shinzen Young, uh, who is the inventor of mindfulness the, with a capital M that has been studied at Harvard and Carnegie Mellon and continues today to be researched by these great institutions. And one of the things that I love about working with Juliana and exploring mindfulness is it's not just about mindfulness or meditation because everybody says that's a good idea or because I want to have less stress in my life, which it does help with that. But I realize that if I can, be, if I can actually elevate my capabilities in managing my mental attention, there's a direct correlation that continues all the way through the chain effect of every single relationship that I have, personally, professionally, clients, partners, team members. Um, you can keep going with it. It all starts with my own self-awareness and my ability to manage my attention, to manage my emotions, um, which just starts with being aware of them. So if you have your handout, uh, you're going to notice that there is, I didn't make it a fill in the blank with all of these blanks, but you will notice that there's a, a very simple visual called the mood elevator. And uh, to give appropriate credit, I first learned this from uh, Larry Sen, who wrote a book called Winning Teams, Winning Cultures, which I think is it's a great, great book. It's, 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 not, uh, it's not organized in a way where um, I refer it often as, hey, from start to end, this is a great book on transforming your culture. But within it, it has some nuggets that I think are profound. Larry Sen, Winning Teams, Winning Cultures. And one of the things that he talks about is what he calls the mood elevator. And he uses this visual description. If, you if, if you're not looking at it on the handout, I'll describe it. Imagine a, a vertical list of emotions where kind of the top half of the list of the emotions are all the positive emotions that you could think of, of uh, emotions like gratitude or 
wisdom or creativity or resourcefulness or hope, appreciation, uh, patience, humor, lightheartedness, playfulness, flexibility. And then the bottom half of the mood elevator is what we would consider uh, kind of what I would call the resistance emotions from, you know, impatience to irritation to worry to defensiveness to judgmental, self-righteousness, stress, anger, and depression. And, and these are not all-inclusive lists, obviously. I think the point here is just to recognize that we have certain moods and emotions that we can reside in that kind of sit in the top half of this mood elevator, uh, and they do vary in intensity, and then we have certain moods and emotions that we can bounce back and forth in around the bottom half of the elevator. And uh, I'm going to lead all of you through a really simple exercise right now. And then I've got a few more points that I make, and then I want to open up for questions because I really believe uh, the best value I can deliver is when I start addressing your specific questions around emotional intelligence. So you better have them ready, everybody. You better have them ready. Um, I want you to turn to the third page in your handout. And... Uh, there should be a picture of a wheelbarrow. Now, if you've been in a training meeting I've run before, or you're one of my strategic planning clients, you've seen this and done this, and if you haven't, that's great. Um, what I'd like you to do as an exercise right now in real time, if you have this picture of the wheelbarrow in front of you, by the way, if you don't have the picture in front of you, I am not going to attempt to describe the picture. Um, <laughs> I, I could... Um, well, you know what? As soon as I said that, I'm like, wait a minute, that's a challenge for myself, right? And those of you who are looking at it are like, I'd love to hear you try and describe this, John. So it's kind of a silhouette of a wheelbarrow. If I had to describe it, it's, it's, um, it, it doesn't look like a normal wheelbarrow. I'll say that. It, it, it looks like something that uh, if, if you weren't holding on to it, maybe it would tip over. It, it, it doesn't have a traditional handle. Um, and it it's, looks different than what most people would think of for a wheelbarrow. Um, so th that's all I'm going to do there because I'm going to try and honor those of you that have the handout. So I'll make this really quick. So if you are – and then when we open up for q and I'll let you chime in on what actually happened when you did this exercise. And it's interesting, even if you don't have the picture, to hear what happens for other people. So what is your perception of this wheelbarrow? Write down three to four quick sentences, just three to four quick observations. Do it quickly. I'm going to give you no more than 20 seconds. It could be anything, any observation you want. There is no right or wrong, good or bad here. Three to four observations about this wheelbarrow, all right? Now, now that you've written down your three to four observations, um, I'm giving you a few more seconds to finish that. Write them down, write them down. Make sure you write down at least three or four to do this exercise. Okay, now that you've written them down, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to give a rating to each of your observations, you're either going to rate your observation as positive. So if you said something like, hey, this is an awesome wheelbarrow. This thing's going to rock. That's a positive observation. Obviously, we're using the honor system here, right? So, you know, just you can, uh, you can evaluate your own observations however you want. If you said something that's neutral, like, um, like I'm not sure how it will work, or it, it's white, um, or uh, it looks interesting, you know, those could be considered a neutral observation. So if you had a positive observation out of your three or four, uh, rank it, uh, give it a plus one. If it's a neutral observation, just give it a zero. And if it's a negative observation, like this thing's not going to work, this is a train wreck, it's poorly designed, terrible idea, out of balance, it's broken, that, then give yourself a negative one on that observation, okay? So either a plus one, a zero, or a negative one. Now here's what's interesting. 
If you're to add up your score, and I've done this exercise um, literally around the world on four different continents with, I don't know, hundreds of different participants at this point, the most common average of all the scores is somewhere between negative one and negative three. Usually folks look at this and they say, it looks a little out of balance, looks like it might not work, looks like it could be a little bit dysfunctional, and that's normal. Um, I remember the first time I did this exercise, I think my score was like negative two, right? Well, let me actually tell you what this is really a picture of, and then this will bring everyone back if you don't have the handout to, back to something you can all uh, work on. I'm going to tell you that this is a silhouette of an actual type of wheelbarrow that is used in heavy construction. And it's actually used as part of a pulley system, and it actually is a really valuable innovation that has enabled uh, construction of really large buildings. So now that you know that, you actually know that it's a highly functioning, valuable, innovative um, technological advancement in the world of wheelbarrows. Um, now that you know that, here's a lesson to take away from this. Because my guess is that the majority of your collective observations about this were probably, hey, this might not work. It looks like it's out of balance. It's broken. I want you to turn back to page two if you have your handout. If you don't, at this point, I'll still be able to bring you back in through my description so that you can follow along from this point forward. If you're back on page two, you remember we talked about this mood elevator, which is a great way of thinking about self-awareness, is just to begin to identify and discern and detect and distinguish where are we on the mood elevator. There's one particular emotion, if we could call it an emotion. There's one particular mental quality that Larry Sen believes, and I fully believe this, and I have found that um, this has solved a lot of my own problems in my relationships. Um, and I find that when I have problems in my relationships or in my business, it's because I am lacking in this particular emotion or this particular quality. This particular emotion or this particular quality, when people ask me if I had to pick one and I could only live with one for the rest of my life, now, I would have to say love, but moving love aside, like if there was one emotion that was going to drive me as an entrepreneur or an achiever or a leader or an innovator or a problem solver, and you're, I'm giving away some clues here, um, I would tell you this is the one mental quality, the one mood, the one emotion that I really truly believe allows us to move from the resistant place of emotions or the negative emotions to the positive emotions and it is, if you want to fill in the blank, if, if it is a blank, I can't tell on your handout if it's a blank or not, but it's the emotion or the feeling of curiosity. It's the feeling of curiosity. And I will tell you right now that if there's one thing that you can take away from this call today, it is that the willingness and even the development of the habit of showing up to conversations through a place of curiosity it will not only resolve so many problems that we all create, but the, the emotion or the mood or the mindset of curiosity, it actually neurologically transforms our ability to create. It changes our ability to dream. It changes our ability to innovate. It transforms our abilities to solve problems. It absolutely elevates our ability to collaborate with others. And I can tell you this is something that I teach all the time and I see it at work and I fail at it every day, um, that one of the biggest reasons we fail when we're trying to collaborate with others is because as soon as we're trying to solve a problem with somebody else, whether it's a client, a customer, a strategic partner, 
um, anyone in our world, a spouse, oftentimes we immediately have differing opinions. And you may have heard me talk about this on prior calls, but you'll notice that when we're talking about emotional intelligence, this is like the name of the game. And this is not in any of the handouts. So if you can capture all this, I'm just going to go for a minute here, okay? One of the challenges that happens when two people are trying to solve a problem or create a better future is we automatically, automatically, naturally are going to have conflicting ideas. And I, and I will tell you that having conflicting ideas is not only normal, it is necessary, and it is actually the source of creating a better future. However, more often than not, it doesn't turn out that way. More often than not, when two people are working together, if we don't have healthy ground rules, if we don't have self-awareness and social awareness built into how we interact, here's what often happens, unfortunately, and I'll put myself in this bucket every single day, is as soon as two people share an idea that they, they don't align with each other, what happens is we go into a mode of defensiveness or controlling, where what happens is we perceive somebody not liking my idea as they don't like me. And, and now it's not even about the ideas anymore. And you may remember this on one of our prior calls, but anytime uh, two or more humans interact, there's three things at stake, right? You not only have the task that's being talked about, but frankly, that's the thing at stake that has the least, there's the least that's going on within a conversation. The second level is the relationship. Oftentimes, as soon as we have a disagreement with somebody, we don't know how to respond because we're just concerned about the relationship. It's why we will choose to change our opinions, which sometimes we shouldn't, or just not assert our opinion because it's like, you know what? I actually value this relationship more than the task at hand, so I'm just going to make my opinion subservient to theirs, and I won't say anything. And then the problem is people walk out of meetings, and they start saying, God, we should have talked about this. We should have brought this up, or somebody should have said this, but we didn't because we're worried about the relationship. And the other thing that's at stake is our own self-identity. Right? Whenever we have a disagreement or there's a point of tension or an objection with a client, with a partner, with a spouse, you know, now we're worried just about ourselves because we have to feel like we have to protect our ideas. And then, and then what happens is this all leads to a downward spiral of defensiveness and, and being controlling. So I want to give all of you a really cool set of tools and techniques to turn this around in any moment, any situation. And it starts by realizing you can't always control your mind. I, that's something that I've given up on, I think, at least a decade ago. And I think it was Lou Ann Oaks who uh, wrote the book Sound Health, Sound Wealth, who I learned this from, is that it, it, as human beings, we should give up on trying to control our first impulse because it's, you know, it's just, it can be a, a, a losing attempt. For me, it is. But what we can do is we can always choose our second thought, which what that really means is once we become aware then we can now decide what to do. But it's not until we're aware that we can do something with it. So if you've ever found yourself in a, in a relationship, professional or personal, where everything I've described so far you can relate to, and there's some point of tension, and it's like, geez, how do I get out of this? How do I deal with this? Well, the first step is being able to label what's going on. The first step is to be able to say internally, this is that self-awareness, okay, I am being defensive right now. And as soon as we can label it, what happens, and from a mindfulness perspective, just the act of being able to label it alone is liberating because the ability to label it now allows us to not become a victim of that emotion because when we label it, it, by the act of labeling it, we're stepping away from it a little bit, and I hope you don't mind me going this intensely deep into this stuff, but it works. 
And it's not that complicated once you understand it. As soon as I can label this is what I'm doing, it allows that emotion to start to fade away. Because emotions come and go like waves. They don't just show up and then disappear. They come and go. And I have learned that the fastest way to get it to go away is just to be able to acknowledge it, right? And I can accelerate having it go away by after I label it, I then can ask myself, okay, I now know what's going on, right? I'm in this disempowering state. I'm becoming defensive. I'm becoming controlling. And now I can do, what I can do is I can trigger myself to get curious. And the fastest way to do it is to use a question. And one of the fastest questions to allow myself to move from being defensive, controlling, disempowering, and where, by the way, can any of you relate to this? Have you ever been in one of these kinds of conversations where there's tension and you don't have the emotional awareness? And it's not really a conversation anymore. It's not really a dialogue. It's more like a two-way monologue. It's like I'm just preparing to say what I'm going to say, and then while you're saying what you're saying, I'm trying to craft how I'm going to say what I'm going to say. That's called a two-way monologue. There is no collaboration there, even when we have the illusion of thinking we're actually solving a problem. So what I want to do is I want to flip the whole thing. And so I know that curiosity is my trigger for that, right? So because I have found for me – that I'm not really good at going from angry to enlightened. <laughs> I'm not good at going from, like, stressed out to appreciating everything in the moment. I think that's for me, it's delusional. But what I have found is I can take small steps. You know, there's a quote, the man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away small stones. I think it's Confucius. And I have found great comfort in managing my own emotions and realizing I can't control the first one, and when it's time to control the second one, because I now realize what's going on, just step by step, right? Because when I, when it, cause I get frustrated if I try and get positive and then I think, oh, shit, I can't be positive right now. This isn't going to work. So I start with curiosity. And the fastest way to start with curiosity after I've become self-aware, see, now I'm managing my thinking, right? I had to be aware first before I even knew how to manage it. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask myself a simple question. And I'll give you some examples of the kinds of questions that I'll ask that will move me from becoming controlling and defensive and creating this tension to actually aligning with somebody and then elevating and creating an even better outcome than the two of us could have figured out combined. And the question I'll ask is, well, what is our shared purpose? What is our shared purpose? If it's with my wife and we're debating something and I'm getting defensive and controlling, I'll stop and ask myself, like, wait a minute, what, my shared purpose, we're in this together. We're on the same team. I'm behaving right now like we're on the opposite team. I've got to remember we're on the same freaking team. Same thing works in business. You know, you have two people debating over how to solve a problem, and sometimes we just have to stop, and in our minds, we have to ask ourselves, wait a minute, why am I even sitting here? What is the purpose that we both have that we can connect to? And how can we elevate now to that? And sometimes what I'll do in a business setting, if I disagree with somebody, is I'll say, hey, look, right now, I think the best thing we should do is agree to disagree, but let's also stop and, and ask ourselves, what is it that we both want out of this? Let's reconnect to our shared purpose. Because what happens is now we move from a deficit conversation, right, to an aspirational conversation that says, look, here's why we're both here, right? And what is our shared meaning, right? Why is it that we're both here? And that's an example of just using curiosity to move us back into this place. And then I'll, I'll give you another technique to use if you're in a situation where you realize, because uh, let, me, let me just call this out as it is. For many of us, we have certain relationships or certain situations in our lives where when we step into them because of our past, we immediately go into a negative state. I'll tell you right now. I have partners that I work with. Um, and and it's, it, by the way, it's not, it's not Hal. It's not Roman. It's probably not anyone any of you know. 
but I have folks who I work with who I will tell you, as soon as I think of their name, I move on the bottom half of the mood elevator. I'm just, I have to admit that to myself. I can't be delusional because if I'm delusional, then what happens is I show up and I treat that person like crap and I, and I realize that it's, well, it's because of how I'm allowing my emotions to determine the relationship, right? So I have people. I also have certain types of meetings that I go to where when I walk into that meeting, I, just, I have a history where it has the tendency to trigger me to move down on the mood elevator. So a good exercise for any of you to do before you're done today or right when you get off is to write down who are the people or the situations that have a tendency to move you into the bottom of the mood elevator, and then you can actually craft out some questions you can ask yourself so that when you step into that situation or conversation the next time, you can flip it around and make it a lot more positive. You can be self-aware ahead of time so that you know what tool you're going to use to manage yourself because let's be real. When our negative emotions are high, our intelligence goes low, right? Like the time to think through this, ironically, is actually not in the moment, right? In the moment, our negative emotions are high, our intelligence is low. When our negative emotions are high, we shut down the part of our brain that does all the thinking we can do. So the best way to be emotionally intelligent is to actually do some homework before you step into a conversation or a situation that tends to drive you down. And to to give yourself ahead of time, okay, what question am I going to ask? Because I know when I see blank person, it's going to make me feel this way. So I have to remember to ask myself, hey, what is it about this person that I actually respect and admire and appreciate? What are this person's strengths so that I can talk about that during the conversation? What are the shared goals that he or she and I have together? so that I can start the conversation from that perspective, right? And here's a really good one, is if I have a person or a situation, and I, oftentimes I'll use this question for myself in the moment when I realize I'm not happy with how things are going and my emotions are not positive, is I'll ask myself, what can I learn right now, right? And this comes from curiosity. What can I learn from this moment? More importantly, what can I learn from that person? Because one of the things that I will tell all of you right now that I have learned in my lifetime is that It is the moments and the situations and the people who have the habit of causing my emotions to go down the most that I can learn the most valuable lessons from. Those moments and those people, they are my greatest teacher if I am smart enough to ask that question. If I don't ask that question, they will not be my greatest teacher. They will be my greatest detriment, and they will continue to be a source of a downward spiral in my life. And that, frankly, is what happens for most people, but not all of you because you're on this call today, right? So think about who are the people, who are the situations, and think about the questions that you can ask. Write them down. Ask them before you step into the situation so that you're building that habit. And I promise you, you're starting by becoming aware ahead of time. You're now managing yourself. It's going to elevate your social awareness and your ability with those relationships too. I'm going to make one more point. You know, a lot of this isn't in the handout. It's just this is from years of this being a topic that I have taught, and uh, I believe in the power of this so much. I think it's important. By the way, I am going to plant the seed. I've got, got to do this. This is just really smart marketing. So I believe in three critical types of intelligence. IQ is, is, plays an important role in our work. EQ, or emotional intelligence, which has emerged in the last 20 years. Um, by the way, one of the things I have not said yet today but I want to say now that I hope it gives you hope, and I hope you've actually found this to be true just by being on this call, is that all of the research and all of the evidence that we have shows that unlike IQ that does not change and it is difficult to change it, EQ or emotional intelligence, it's actually fairly easy to develop these competencies, which might be surprising to you. It was surprising to me. But if you think about this last 30, 45 minutes we spent together, for some of you, 
you may have gotten some tools that are going to totally elevate your ability to work with your emotions. You know, whereas I don't know what I could teach that would just elevate your IQ. So I do believe there's a third type of intelligence, and this is a way of planting a seed for you to come back to a future call uh, when I eventually uh, tell how we should do this call. And I believe in something called spiritual intelligence. Now, let me see how many people drop off the call here. Sometimes when we use the S word, we lose people. But I'm not talking about spiritual intelligence uh, in terms of a, a, a religious sense. I'm talking about spiritual intelligence in that I really believe that spiritual intelligence is the ability to give meaning to our lives. It's our ability to give meaning and to identify our values. It's also the capability that allows us to really evolve who we are as individuals. And when I run a call on this, I'll share with you some of my teachers and resources that I've learned a lot from this. I actually believe that um, you know, everyone from those who are talking about mega trends in the business place who say that spirituality and business is one of the top mega trends right now, um, to those that are talking about purpose at work, they're all saying the same thing. Um, but I do believe that that is a third type of intelligence, that when you look at IQ and EQ, neither of those address our ability to give meaning and purpose and to clarify our values uh, and to clarify how we evolve ourselves as human beings. So that is a future call I'm excited to run at some point. Uh, but let me finish with one more thought for those of you, because I know there's a lot of you who are entrepreneurs uh, in this space, or there's a lot of you, who, whether or not you call yourselves entrepreneurs, you've realized that these tools we're talking about through these calls are, are really critical in your ability to grow your business. I want to I leave you with this, and this is something that uh, when I worked at the Vitamix Corporation, you know, they first hired me as a consultant to kind of redesign their business. Uh, sales training program and to coach their uh, senior managers. And, you know, the first thing I realized is they're already great at what they do at selling. So I, I took a different approach where I said, I'm just going to go study everything that's great and then make sure we're duplicating that. Uh, the other thing that I realized is that one of the things their very best salespeople were doing intuitively when they were selling is they were what I would call selling at an aspirational level. And so when we, when we actually rewrote their sales training book, I wrote an entire chapter on the psychology of selling, and really it was all about the role of emotions when we sell something. And so I want to leave all of you with this to think about, um, and if you're a student of Tony Robbins, you know, I first learned this concept 17 years ago when I went through an Influence Mastery three-day course. They stopped running it, I think, 14 years ago. Now you can get it on tapes, but it used to be a live three-day program. And um, I'll never forget being taught this whole idea that, you know, people don't buy anything because of logical reasons. And if you've been taught this, you know the formula, right, that, that people justify their purchases or we justify our decisions with logic, but ultimately we're driven to decide based on our emotions. And, you know, if you think about what drives us to make decisions, and if you use Tony Robbins' model, he talks about human needs. And you start to think about it, and it's like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. You know, we might justify with logic, but ultimately what drives us to buy is the need to feel a certain way. And maybe it's to feel more certainty or significance. In our country, those needs drive more buying decisions than any. I go around the world, I'll tell you there's countries where th those don't drive decisions. It's really interesting. What is fascinating is this concept that I'm talking about right now, I have taught it to a group of Japanese business people. They didn't speak English. We had a translator, and instantaneously it made sense to them. So the principle is sound across cultures and across industries. Uh, but what drives different cultures isn't always the same. But here's the lesson I want to leave all of you with. 
is that if you lead others, the number one job of a leader is to influence, is to inspire. Number one job of a leader is the ability to inspire. If you sell something, your job is to inspire. It's to inspire somebody to see something differently, to, to do something differently, to make a different decision, right? Well, at the root of what changes somebody's behaviors is ultimately shifting some sort of emotional shift. And so I want you to think about whatever it is that you sell or whatever vision you're trying to sell to others, I want you to think about what are the three levels of explanation that you're giving to people. And here's a great simple framework for you to take away from this call, and it has everything to do with emotional intelligence in an entrepreneurial setting. So first of all, you have features, right? And we all know that one of the most common mistakes that we all make when we're new in selling or in leading is trying to convince somebody to do something because of the features. Hey, you should come to this meeting because we're going to do blank. You should buy this product or invest in this solution because it has blank feature. We all know that that would be a kind of a rookie mistake to make. We all know that people don't just buy because of features, but ultimately because of the benefits, right? It's like if I'm trying to sell a drill bit, am I selling the drill bit? No, I'm selling the hole. I'm not selling the drill bit. So we're selling the benefit. Well, I'm going to tell you there's two types of benefits, and this is how I'm going to finish this. I'm going to tell you there's what we call logical benefits. This will save you time. This will save you money. Um, this will improve your health. This will make, give you a better life. And you might think, well, that's more than logical. Well, no, what, what elevates it is when you go from a logical benefit to an emotional benefit, right, which is when you go from, hey, here's the feature. The feature is blank, and that really matters because it will do this for you. And, but what that really means is you're going to feel this way, right? And that's what we call the emotional benefit. And I will tell you this is a technique that I can't tell you how many different places we've used this in crafting, whether it's a sales presentation or um, inspiring somebody to make any kind of decision. What drives people are the emotional benefits. And if you're wondering, I'll give you a little trick, a kind of a shortcut. If you're wondering, how do I make sure that I'm selling at the emotional level, there's a phrase that we like to use and I've, I've taught this to so many salespeople, and they love it because they're like, yeah, I could forget the whole lesson, but if I just remember this phrase, it always works. And the phrase is, is this. It's literally to tell yourself to say out loud while you're selling something or uh, trying to persuade somebody of something, to say the phrase, and that, here's what that really means, or here's why that matters to you, or the phrase, and that matters because, or the phrase, and the reason why that matters is because of blank. Because when you say that, it actually forces you to move up that buying ladder from feature to benefit to possibly a more emotional benefit, right? So just a simple technique I wanted to share. At this point, I've got to be respectful of time. I haven't even looked at the clock. Where, oh, my gosh, it's 3.08. All right. So if you have a question, I think there's a way for you to raise your hand. I, I can't. Hmm, Q&A session started. So let's see, how does it work? There's a way for you to raise your hand. I guess if any of you know how to raise your hand, then do it, and then you'll be able to tell me. Uh, Q&A. I think you press star six. Try that out. Somebody hits, if you have a question, somebody hit, oh, hit star six only if you have a question. Um, maybe it's not star six. Maybe it's, oh, somebody did it. All right, perfect. Whoever is at nine, uh, area code 919535. You just raised your hand. So I'm going to call on you so you can at least tell us how you raised your hand. So hold on one second here. All right, I've just hey, opened up the line. Who is this? Do you have hey, a question? Hey, John, it's Mike Merriam here. So what you do is you hit star six, and then it says if you want to ask a question, hit one. And you do that. It puts you in queue. It will notify you that there's a question. 
Oh, Mike, thanks, man. Awesome. And, 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 and can I help you with anything? I just, I'm interested in getting your take on something. Um, so what you were talking about, you know, where you can't always control your first impulse, and what we want to do is label that, acknowledge it, and essentially dispose of it by replacing it with a, a positive response or a, posit- a positive emotion. You know, there's a lot of theory in neuroscience that suggests that the more often we do that, that we literally rewire our brains, right? They have this phrase that's the synapses that fire together, wire together. And so if we we work on doing that over time, won't that inherently begin to change our first response? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. And uh, by the way, since you brought this up, I'll share with you the first time I was – I was kind of exposed to that idea it was a guy named Bruce Lipton who wrote a book, I don't know how many years ago, decades ago, called The Biology of Belief, where kind of exactly what you're saying, he talked about the, the science behind this. So, Mike, I will say I agree wholeheartedly. I do believe that, uh, I believe that the way the brain works, and I, I won't start labeling all these chemicals, but what you just said, yeah, when... When our synapses fire, there's a chemical called my- – I just said I wasn't going to name the chemical that I'm doing. There's something <laughs> called myelin. Myelin, and, yeah. Yeah, I, I fully believe that it's kind of like every time you have a thought, it's like you've got a shovel and you're digging a trench, right? Or it's like you're digging a hole in the sand. And every time you have that thought, you're digging deeper and deeper until eventually it becomes so easy for that thought or that to happen again and again. I fully align with that, and I fully agree that we also experience atrophy, which is if you don't do something, it's harder and harder for your brain to do something. I fully align with that. The reason why I still will say to myself, hey, look, I can't always choose my first thought is because um, I believe that I, I, I think it's a way of not judging myself. It's a way because if I set a standard and I say, you know what? If I know that I can reprogram my brain, then that's my standard I should set, but then I still have a negative thought well, then I might start judging myself. And that's one of the things I've learned is how important it is to, when I do have a thought that I catch it and I realize, you know what, I'm not doing so great right now. You know, one of the, for me, I've found that one of the fastest ways to still deal with it is to start letting go of the self-judgment because that's one of the reasons I'll hang on to it is because I'm just dwelling and beating myself up, which is, seems to just magnify the feeling. So that's, that's why I shared that thought that, you know, I'll remind myself, I can't always control that first thought, but I at least know I can always control my second choice or second thought. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm totally glad you asked that because that is something that I do believe in, what you said. Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to back up what I already thought by hearing you say it, so I appreciate that. That's cool. Thanks, Mike. Good to hear from you. Hey, if there are more questions, uh, you can press star six. I'm happy to share any reflections or thoughts at all around this topic of emotional intelligence. It's a crazy topic if you think about it. I mean, it's um, so every question is a good question if there are any at all. And, and my apologies, too, if, if any of you happen to be trying to ask and my control panel, I'm messing it up. Oh, oh, oh I just, as I say that, here's, wow, the questions are raining in. All right. Let me uh, let me start here. I don't see the name, oh, I but think I will that's say. Me. Oh, Sharissa, what's up? Hey. <laughs> um. Okay, so I, I I'm not sure that I'm 
phrasing my question correctly, so I'm just going to spit it out what I'm thinking. Um, as when you were talking about, you know, starting starting meetings or, like, going into calls or going into something where, you know, it's like you do have a task you want to accomplish or let's say you're on, you're, you know, you have a scheduled call with, like, a coaching client. Maybe there's a gray area between, like, what the purpose of the call is. What mm -hmm. are your thoughts or questions that you would ask yourself or your client around how they're feeling to inspire the brain to, like how, how you said, to inspire the brain to sort of connect on the relational level, um, yeah. but also make sure that there's outcome in the call and you're not just like connecting and skipping over the task? Sure, sure. Does that make That's sense? A, I, I think so. Let me paraphrase. Well, let me ask you to do this. Can you restate your question a second time and just do it with more brevity? Because my guess is it's to help me. It might have been perfectly stated, but restate it again yeah. in like a sentence or less. Okay. So if you have, so let's say you, you, don't, you don't know the exact outcome that you want out of like a coaching call with a client, how do you yep. skip over the, the task side of um, like, okay, well, what is it that I can, can I help you with? and also blending in the relational aspect of, like, to connect with each other and, like, still, still, yeah, okay. still provide, like, a solid outcome. Great, 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 great. So I'll, I'll um, I will, I'll, I'm going to tell you a story to answer your question. And great. it's a story about the first time that I went overseas to, to, to do business in Japan. And I, I did some research. I probably did not as much as I should have. I met with some consultants. And, you know, one consultant who was the most helpful, he sat me down. He's like, he's like, let me just tell you how Americans do business, and I'll tell you how Japanese people do business. He goes, Americans, the first thing they want to do is get down to business. And then they get down to business, and then somewhere along the line, they stop and figure out, if at all, how do, how do we feel about everything? He goes, when you go to Japan, just consider it the opposite order. And a funny story is I go to Japan for a week, and they take us out to dinner every night, the most amazing restaurants in the world. And every night we have an amazing time. We're building relationships. They're taking me into their home. I'm meeting their children. We're cooking meals together. We're doing these trainings during the day. And on the last dinner of the last night of the last meeting of the week, they bring up the, the, the most important task. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's just like the guy said it was going to happen. Um, <laughs> So there's a, I share that story because there's a, there's a give and a take and there's an important balance to strike. And what's important to recognize is that when you're showing up to a coaching call, oftentimes the client, they think they need a certain type of call. Like they often think, okay, man, I, I'm just hoping that in the first few minutes, I hope Sharissa just changes my world, right? Like, you know, they might have a tension or a concern or in a meeting setting, somebody might think, let's get into the task quickly because we're so accustomed to inefficient meetings that we worry that if we don't get into the task quickly, we're going to waste time. So part of what I'm always trying to balance and what you have to balance is knowing that there's that tension, but also knowing that what's going to actually allow you to be more efficient is to connect relationally and to get people comfortable before you say, hey, let's talk about how to get the most out of the call today, right? So, I mean, I had a call earlier today where it was actually, you know, it was a negotiation with a, um, a strategic partner, and I'm just getting to know this particular person. And um, I just made a, a note to myself. I'm like, look, before we get into this, 
let me just make sure that he and I talk about our families. And, and, he, and everyone listening might be going, that's it? That's all you're here to tell us, talk about our families? But look, sometimes when it's the most tempting to get tactical, it's when it's most important to start relational. So uh, you know what I said to him? I just said, hey, Matt, look, we've got some important stuff. We're, uh, we've got some important stuff we're going to cover today. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. I said, but look, I know you and I both have had a lot going on, and uh, I just got to tell you my world's been crazy. I, so I just said, how you doing? How are things in your world, man? I'd love to know just how you are as a person um, before we get in. So that's all I said. And he talked, and then I talked, and we, it, it turned into like seven minutes about our kids. And, it, and then it was like, oh, man, we could talk about this forever. And, I, and, I, and then I started asking him for advice. And I'm like, hey, this is great. I, let's get into our topic. And so it, it kind of set an emotional tone that was really healthy. I'll tell you a setting where I do this where it's not always, I don't know, it's not as easy when you don't just have one person. I walk into board meetings where I have eight people. And I know every time I walk in, they're all thinking the same thing. They're thinking, one, this guy's half my age. They're thinking, two, this is going to be the <laughs> biggest waste of time we've ever had. And they're thinking, and they're just, and they're upset at whoever brought me in. And, you know, that, I have to treat it that way. And so one of the things that I do is I, I give the appearance of getting into the task because that's the, what they think they need, that, right? But what I hide inside of that cheese, you have to hide the medicine inside the cheese, is I will do it in a way that is relational. So I would say to that group, that board, I'd say, I'd say hey, look, I, I really respect all of your time. And, um, in fact, I respect it so much that um, what I'd love to do is just immediately dive in and the, and the first thing we'll do to dive in is have each of you just go around the table and share, um, you know, who you are. This is for me and, and what your greatest aspiration is out of the meeting. Or, or I'll even say, you know, what is it that you enjoy most about working together as a group? So the irony is I've couched it as let's be efficient and get started. Yet the actual dialogue is framed to where it'll have to be relational. It'll either be what are you excited to get about the meeting or what is it that you enjoy about working together? And I'll couch that as, this is a way for me to get to know all of you so I can be respectful of how we work together. But I've pre-framed it as, hey, let's be efficient and let's get started. So sometimes you have to, um, you have to be relational but where they think it's task-focused, if that makes In fact, I did, this, um, I did this in a meeting just last week where I was leading a strategic session, and I didn't know if everyone was sold on the purpose for being there. And, so, and this is an example of being relational. Some of you might think, well, this is task-focused, but... Being relational also means just getting people focused positively on what's going on. So mm. what I did is I broke them. There was a group of eight, and I broke them into teams of two. I said, hey, as first thing I want to do is I just want to understand why this meeting is important. So if you could all take 30 seconds and, in groups of three, share with each other why this topic that we're going to address is important to you. I'd like to see if, if we have a shared understanding of why this is important. So that I had them spend five minutes talking about why this is important, then I had them share it verbally out loud. And what happens is by having them talk together, I'm actually building their relational capacity because a lot of meetings start not by having people connect with each other. And then also the choice itself of discussion was putting, a, putting them in a positive frame because they were reinforcing why they were glad to be there. Because, again, I'm trying to counter this, oh, man, this is a problem, we've got to solve problems, we've got to focus on the task, and it's going to be inefficient. So there's a lot of ways to try and be relational to counter everyone's desire to be task-focused. Does that help at all? Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. Teresa, Thank anyone you. that you coach is privileged to be coached by you. I know that, so <laughs> that's wow. totally awesome. Hey, <laughs> Thank hey you so thanks much. for your question. All right, I'll meet yeah. you out here. 
All right, I'm going to try and go down the line. I, I see there's uh, three or four questions. So next up here, um, I just unmuted somebody, 214-548. Please, go ahead. Sorry, I sound a little scratchy throat today. I've really enjoyed this. I thought I had a good grasp on emotional intelligence from some, I don't know, TV specials or something. But um, <laughs> it really hit me what you said about the wheelbarrow and like, are your first responses critical and I realized that my first responses in life in general to everything tend to be critical. And um, now, who did you learn? Did you learn that from your dad or your mom? Oh, uh, pro- probably my mom. Yeah, me too. Sorry, I interrupted. I just figured I would yeah. call that out. Weren't <laughs> <laughs> worrying. You should be worrying about that. And yeah, yeah. Wrong. Everything's wrong. I'm, I'm an English teacher, an English tutor, and so like I, I view the universe with a red pen in hand. Mm. I, I'm, you know, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging, but I'm, I'm really, really smart IQ wise, but I'm bad at people because I want to get things done, and it's like I even know how to fake being good with people, but it's too yeah. hard. To that in my personal relationships, like, um, I mean, I'm afraid that the people I love the most have really borne the brunt of, you know, notice everything wrong first and then try to remember to get around to saying nice things. And it mm, hurt, my, hurt wow. my close relationships. And I've become really aware of it. And I'm working to correct it. But I'm old. I'm 61. It's a long time I've felt this way. So... I'm, um, oh, I mean, do you have like a shortcut trick, like some way to just keep it front of mind? Um, I don't know, meditation yes. or? Yes, So first of all, first Thank of all, can, do, if, if you don't mind, what is your name, please? And you can use a, a, a pen name if you want. Oh, I'm Be- <laughs> Becky. Becky. Becky, um, first of all, thank you for your willingness uh, and, and I just want to acknowledge that, you know, you claim you're old. I claim you are now aware, right? Uh, you know, oh, you I have an awareness. That. You, you have an awareness or a wisdom. And, Becky, um, I will tell you, I can relate so directly to what you are talking about. Um, in fact, my wife, if she was here, would gladly confirm how directly uh, I can relate and how directly she can relate to those in your life. And I will, I will tell you that um, I, I am far, far from – anywhere close to having figured this out. Uh, But one of the things that I try and do is knowing that um, I have this, uh, I I in the past have had this tendency to be judgmental first. One of the things I do is, first of all, acknowledge for myself that that's also a strength, right? So, in fact, look at you, right? Like your ability to discern, to find what's wrong or what's missing well, that's what makes you exceptional as a teacher, and you know that, right? So it's important to recognize that oftentimes our greatest strengths are also the source of our greatest deficiencies. And the reason why I call that out is because, you know, we can swing the pendulum too far and say, well, gosh, I should just shut this down. But then we're not really being more of who we are. I think what really we want to do, and this is what you're asking and what I imagine you're already becoming aware of is, is how do you use that strength, that ability to discern and to distinguish and to judge something where it's important? But then how do you become more conscious 
about shutting down that way of doing things when you're in a relationship where that's not what serves it. And so I will tell you, for me, one of the things that I have to do is uh, my commute, and I'm, I'm blessed, it's, it's like a four-minute commute, but it's like, and sometimes I turn it into 15 minutes just to fix my head, um, but on my commute home, I will often just have a conversation with myself, and um, I will kind of just talk to myself about, hey, and it's, it's always questions, and it's always, I always start with, okay, what questions do I need to ask myself now, right? And I usually don't know the answer, and then I think, well, okay, how do I, how do I want to show up at home and um, what, what way of showing up is going to really serve my family the most? And, and I realize, you know, it, it's loving and accepting whatever I walk into. Um, that's all that matters. All they need is me to connect. And when I don't do that, I show up and I see that my, my one-year-old, my four-year-old, and my six-year-old have made a mess. I might see what my wife hasn't done during the day, not realizing she's literally accomplished more as a mom than I do ever in a day in business. Um, but when I do ask those questions, you know what happens? I walk in and I give my kids a hug. I give my wife a hug because I'm reminded that all they need and want is connection. And that's, and that's what that relationship needs right there. So Becky, I would just say, start to think about, um, start to think about, look, this area of how you approach things, this is a strength. And where do you want that strength to help you? And where do you want to let that strength kind of sit on the sidelines um, and sometimes it also means, you know, when you become conscious of this, like right now when we hang up, I want you to think about a relationship in your life that's really important where you haven't showed up the way you want to. And I want you to write that person a note. For you, it'll help to write the note. And to write them a note and to say, hey, look, um, I am aware that the way I show up doesn't always serve our relationship. And tell that person, I would really love if the next time that we interacted, um, that we talked about, and then I want you to come up with a positive conversation topic, like something like next time we talk or next time we share a meal together, could we talk about our four favorite memories together? I'll come up with mine, you come up with yours, and we'll see if they match or what they are. Or could we share with each other, like what, what was our best moment of 2015? Like just come up with a really simple positive aspiration for a conversation with somebody um, or it could be like, hey, next time we – or you don't set it up. Don't send them the note. And if you can remember, when you sit down with that person, start the conversation from a place of strength. Say, hey, can I just – whatever we're going to talk about right now or whatever we have to deal with, can I just start by telling you, here's something I really love about you. Here's something I really appreciate about you. And, Becky, if it helps you, write that note to somebody and then call them and read the note out loud instead of sending it. Or write it and then read it to them in person next time you see them. Now, this will be extreme for you. Uh, it's going to totally make your brain go crazy, um, but it might really help. So these are a couple of things that I've done on occasion. Probably could do more of it in my world, but does that help at all? Yes, it does. Thank you. Um, hey, thank you for chiming in. Awesome. Hey, uh, I see that we have Robert Murray. Robert, it's cool to hear from you, buddy. Any questions that I can answer hey, for you? Hey, John. How's it going? Great. Awesome. So one of the things, I, first of all, I found the session really helpful, so thanks. It, it's, it was very, uh, very informative. One of the things that I noticed is when I'm in a networking situation and I'm in a bad place, that basically every interaction that I have will go south very quickly. Like it just, it, it just won't work out. You'll walk out of the thing. It's like I know this is going to be a disaster or I'm coming from a place of need 
And it's like, oh, if I could just find one person who could become a client, you know, that would be great. And it just completely ruins it because of my negative uh, take on, on the situation. How do you get into state? When, when you're aware of that going on in your head, when you're not in a good place, how do you get into state so you can turn that around and, and get into a better situation where you're interacting with people on the right level? Yeah, great question, Robert. I, my guess is that's a question many of us on the call can relate to. Um, but there's a couple things. One is if there's a situation in your business, and in your case networking is probably a continuous, never-ending activity that's part of you building your business, if there's something yeah. that is, is going to be a continuous activity and it's a high priority, then that means that's an area where you really do want to build in some rituals before you continually step into that setting. Even if, it's, even if someone else is listening and they're thinking, well, I've got a high priority area, but I feel like I show up pretty well every time, I would still tell you to create a ritual if it's a high priority area so that you can elevate even more how we show up. And so that's the first thing, Robert, is create a ritual. And the ritual could be, uh, it could be an affirmation that you read to yourself before you step into every networking setting that, you know, I'm here to serve, I'm here to give, I'm here to elevate, I'm here to connect, right? Whatever, whatever you come up with, right? Um, right. So that's one thing is creating a ritual. The other thing is having a, uh, having a plan B. You know, the plan B is, uh, in the, it's a form of a ritual, but if you find yourself in that moment, you're not in a great state. To me, what I do immediately is, I, and this you know, sounds funny to some people, but I change my physiology, and usually what that really means is I, if I can, I'll exit the space, and all I do is focus on my breathing um, because I, I have found for me that if I, if I start by focusing on my breathing, something usually happens where it will usually deepen and it will slow. And when it begins to get deeper and slower, what's happening is my physiology at a place that I really consider kind of the source for me um, is now getting a lot more grounded and centered because all of our emotions, we didn't talk about this today, but emotions are a physical experience. In fact, if you, when, you're in a, when any of us are in a bad place, whatever that label is, you can actually find that emotion in your body. Literally, if you say, where, is it, where am I feeling this? You can find it, right? So I yeah. have found that um, the fastest way to resolve that for me, if I can, is just breath work. And so oftentimes that's something I do, uh, and you're not, this is not what you just said, but if I get nervous, because um, I'm naturally an introvert. I, I, if I had a choice, I'd be alone in the woods all day long every day. In fact, I, I am alone in the woods every day for like an hour and a half. But when I'm, in, when I'm running a big event, um, I still get nervous. And the thing that I have eventually learned to come back to is just my breath um, and some simple mindfulness techniques that I've learned from Juliana over the years. But that, that's another tool that for me is a plan B is I find that it's kind of like a reverse. It's like a back door into my emotions is if I, um, if I just acknowledge my breath, slow it down, deepen it. Uh, and then at that point, go back into an empowering ritual, whether it's an affirmation or some questions to kind of redirect, why is this moment important to me? What strengths do I have to bring to others right now? How could I elevate this meeting and the value that I bring and the value that I create and capture more than any other way? Like come up with some intelligent questions that 
you don't have a choice other than to have those questions change your state, right? Right. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Thanks for a great question, Robert. Good to hear from you, buddy. All right. I'm going to move on here to, um, let me see if I unmuted it, area code 323633. Hey, John. This is John Lanza. How are you doing? Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. I was at the BYEB event uh, in December. It was fantastic. This call was great, too, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, I'll keep mine short. I actually just wanted to piggyback off. You guys were talking about myelin, and I had, I don't know if you probably have read The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, so it's less of a question, more of just the um, sure, yeah. information. And yeah. uh, so if anybody wants to find out more about what myelin does, they talk about how it's the secret to skill, and they talk about a concept called deep practice. And uh, so I just thought I'd throw that out there because it's an absolutely terrific book that uh, people might like uh, in this group. Oh, that's great, John. Totally relevant, and thank you for doing that. Yeah, yeah, the talent code. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. Sure, sure, no problem. Awesome. All right, I see it looks like there might only be – Maybe one more uh, question here, unless I'm misunderstanding the panel. So if anyone else has one, I, I, I seem to just stay on the call. <laughs> uh, what is the number here? Area code 817419. Go ahead. Oh, I thought I just opened up another question if your phone number is Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, you might – my, my – uh, this is Rob Murray again. You might have unmuted me instead of the 817. Oh, all right. Hold on. Well, maybe it's both. Thanks, Rob. All right. Is there another question here? Uh, Area code 817-419? Maybe not. All right, let me try this. All right, maybe I just unmuted it now. Or maybe that person's question was answered. All right. Well, hey, at this point, if anyone has any other... Oh, there we go. I'm sorry. I thought oh. I messed up. Please. How can I <laughs> no, help? No, it's all good. The mic wasn't working. This is Regan up in Eugene, Oregon. Regan, awesome. Um, just wanted, I think Charisse's question actually answered a lot of it, but just wanted to know, like, when we find ourselves in a situation, in a negotiation or a situation where we start to see things going off track and the other person doesn't have you know, doesn't really know about emotional intelligence or isn't asking themselves what the purpose of our meeting is, how do we facilitate us getting back on track? Yeah, that's a great question. Without, well, without specifically yeah. asking, let's get together on our purpose. Without, without telling them how inferior they are as a human? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, uh, exactly. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you could hand them a copy of this phone call and say, you should check this out. This would really help. Um, No, you can't do that. So I think that's one of the great challenges of being socially aware is when we start to recognize how others are showing up. I mean, this is like, you know, if I had a really perfect formula for this, uh, it would be awesome. But when we start to recognize that, hey, others are showing up in kind of a suboptimal way, and, but, but it's not appropriate to call that out. You know, that's where it's really important to have, um, to have as part of your toolkit the ability to guide the dialogue. Because at the end of the day, one of the fastest ways to shift the feeling in the room 
is by being the one who is asking the questions that is guiding the dialogue so that whether or not others know what's happening, they, and so that's probably why um, the question from earlier may have helped you because the example I gave is like they don't know because I'm not telling them, hey, I'm doing this to shift the mood in the room. And actually, sometimes I am. I'll just tell them, look, my belief and all the research I've seen says that if we talk about this or do this this way, we're actually better off. So if you don't mind, let's talk about it. But sometimes I'll do that. But when you can't do that, that's where it's important for you to be prepared ahead of time. When you come into, you, you know, you asked about a negotiation. I've dealt with negotiations where there's a lot at stake. And uh, sometimes what I'll do is I, I will make sure that I am the one that kicks off the conversation. Because if someone else kicks it off and they are not socially aware or they don't respect the importance of the social awareness in the room or between the two of us, then it it could get to a point where they might start a conversation and I can't redirect it and I am stuck, right? So that's why it's important to be willing and prepared to take the lead. And uh, how do you – so what does that actually look like? Well, what it means is when I'm sitting down, I know there's a lot at stake and I don't have a relationship where I can say, hey, let's start from a positive relational place. Um, Part of it is, and this is just old school selling, is um, start by building rapport, by having a list of questions about their world and and have a series of questions that you can build on. Even if the first one is, hey, I know we've got a lot to get into. Um, How you doing? How's your world been? And it's amazing how by just calling out, hey, I know we've got to talk about this, but look, how are you doing? Like, let me just check in. What's going on in your world or what are you excited about? Or, uh, or if it can be more specific because you know about their world or their business or their lives. Um, it's amazing how often as soon as people get to talk about what's going on in their world, it shifts the tone of the conversation because the thing that people care most about is themselves. And if you ask them to talk about what's important or exciting or going on or um, interesting in their world, they will. Uh, one of the other things that I will do is um, I will o- often prepare like a little mini speech at the outset of a meeting. And I, nowadays I probably don't prepare it as much as I, I just do it intuitively. But I, I can remember literally dozens and dozens of situations where I've rehearsed literally a one-minute comment that I'm going to make where it's literally how am I going to open up and frame this meeting. And so sometimes just by being the one that says, hey, look, Um, I just want to start by saying, look, what we're here today is to figure out um, how to create the very best possible future, you know, together. And so before we get into all the details, one of the things I'd love to do is maybe take a moment and have each of us just share, like, what's most important to us around this? Like, what would you, what would make this an ideal outcome for you? Right? So just by, just by framing that, look, we're both here to create something positive together in and of itself can start to shift the conversation. And then by inviting folks and saying, hey, look, what's important to you? I want to make sure that, look, I got stuff I want to present to you. You got stuff you want to say, but let me just start by asking, like, what matters more than anything? What matters more than anything? And what does success look like? If we have a positive outcome here, what's important for you? Uh, And how would you like this to go? And how would you like for us to interact as we have these dialogues and conversations? So you'll notice it's not about some sort of overt manipulation of people's feelings as much as it is um, being other-centric, focused on others and, and giving them the space to talk about what's going on and to, to let them explore uh, what the shared purpose is. So I don't know if that helps at all. 
Does that help? Super helpful. Thank you. Absolutely. Awesome. It's a great question. I have many war stories yeah, from negotiations where it did not, it was rough. It was very rough. In fact, you know what? I'm going to share one of them right now. I'm going to just for fun. There's a, I think there's one other question, but I'm going to share a war story. And the story is, no, I'm not. I'm going to, I'm going to answer the question. I can't, I can't get into that story. It could take me five minutes. Um, that was more for me than for everyone else, I think. All right. Let me open up another. It be for us too. <laughs> Did I, did someone else just get unmuted or no? Hello. 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 Who's this? Paul Cantu in Seattle, Washington. Hey, Paul, I love, Paul, I I just have to say, I love seeing how um, you hold yourself accountable to the world by showing us uh, how you keep track of making like 400 phone calls in a day. Um, So I'm honored that you're, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, I love that. Oh, how you doing, Thank man? You. How can I help? I'm, I'm doing great. Well, you can help me because um, what I wanted to know is if you have some tips or some tools that you might be able to share with me, because I'm, I need to make these, you know, grand number of calls every day almost. I, make, I take one day off a week, but my time is really, really valuable. And if something happens, like something really negative happens, like I had a really bad day yesterday. One thing was business and one thing was personal, and it just totally – more or less debilitated me for like three or four hours and I had like the most unproductive evening and I didn't get my calls done um, to a great extent. What are some tools that you can give me, like if, you, if something really negative happened and to not let it just totally throw off your productivity for, the, for a, a, a really long duration of time that day? Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. You know, I had that happen. What's today, Wednesday? I had that happen on Monday. I actually had something go on in my world where I had to cancel half a day of meetings. So I, I, after I say that, now I'm like the least qualified to help you, right? <laughs> um, so I'm just going to tell you that that happens. And, you know, for, I'll, I'll speak from my experience, Paul, that when that does happen, I think one of the most important things for me is, um, is just honoring it. And I've learned this a lot from Juliana, who I years ago hired as a private mindfulness coach, that, um, that sometimes it's actually really healthy to just sit with negativity, right? How funny is that to say at the end of a call on emotional intelligence? Um, you know, but it, it's actually it's good to just sit with it. Um, and it's because sometimes if we, if we have something really drastic happen and we, and we try and manipulate or use a technique uh, to become positive, I don't know about you, Paul, but I, I found that sometimes it just makes it worse because now it's like, well, I can't get positive, so now I'm like an idiot and I'm broken. I can't even fix myself. I feel even worse about it, right? So I guess that's yeah. where um, allowing it to come and go um, can really help. I, I do believe that, you know, using these techniques can make it so that the time that it pulls us out can, can be less and less and less, and that's part of it is just a commitment. Part of it is a commitment to... Um, just making it a habit that any time we have a thought that moves us into a, a place of uh, disconnection or resistance or a negative emotion, um, to just catch it and to be in the habit of catching it, acknowledging it, and then letting it fade away, that in and of itself will help. And then again, for me, it's, um, it's, it's acknowledging with myself that it's part of life. It's part of the human experience. And sometimes just the acknowledgement of that um, it, it, it helps me to have a perspective. And sometimes what happens, Paul, is right when I have that perspective, what happens is I realize, wait a minute, I've had this before. 
and I've, I've turned out okay. Uh, like this, for, for me, when I get overwhelmed, I got a lot of responsibility on my plate. Um, I have to stop and go, you know what? I got to remember that I seem to always get through this. Like I've never had one where the world ended because sometimes we treat these things that way. And so just by acknowledging, hey, it is what it is. I feel like crap right now. And then stepping back and, and having perspective, or maybe you might call it faith in that, hey, look, I, I'm going to look back on times in my life where I had things like this, and I seem to have found a way through. So why don't I give myself permission to find a way through a little bit quicker this time? Um, I found that that, for me, helps a lot. And, and I'll just reiterate something I said earlier that I really believe in, which is uh, changing our physiology. I mean, I've got – so here in my office, um, I have a, uh, a, a yoga mat, and – you know, before a key meeting, I do five minutes of yoga. Now, for all of you that want to make fun of me, I will tell you it's my secret weapon, and I don't care what you do, and I'm just going to tell you it works. But uh, I literally believe that doing five minutes of yoga literally changes who I am as a human being in that moment. I've done it for so long um, that I, I, I can just tell you, when I do it, it transforms me. Now, look, Paul, you or anyone else, it, maybe it's not yoga, but anytime you can shift your physiology, because I believe that our emotions are locked in our bodies physically. It's why I've had yoga instructors over the years who've said, hey, look, if you want to get rid of uh, this tension in your life emotionally, you've got to do this stretch. You know, these emotions get locked in your shoulders. These emotions get locked in your hips. And uh, I'll literally do a hip stretch and I stand up and, um, you know, I, it changes how I feel. So, you know, whether or not anyone, whether or not any of you want to buy into that or believe in it, it's been true for me. So I, I do think, Paul, that changing your environment and your physiology, it's got to be one of the tools that you use to get your blood flowing, um, anything that can change you physically, in addition to whatever else I said before that. So, and, and maybe so it's much. just, um, maybe open another bottle of wine and you'll be fine. <laughs> No, that's all awesome stuff. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you, Paul. Awesome, buddy. Looking um, forward to seeing hey. you, Mark. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah, um, hey, I have a request. Can I make a request of all of you who are still on the line? And I can see there's still um, quite a few of you. I don't know, 20 of you or so. Um, I, have, I, I have one request. And the request is, if you got value from this today, please, please, please go somewhere onto the Best Year Ever Coaching Facebook page and talk about it. And let me tell you why I'm asking for that. I don't need that for my own personal affirmation. Um, I have a feeling that this helps some of you in some way. The reason I want you to do that, uh, please, this is going to help others because there's, there are a lot of folks who have invested to be a part of this coaching program. Now, many of them will go listen to the recorded calls. But there's many who, because of their lives and life happening, they won't listen to these calls. And I really feel compelled that if somebody's investing something, I really want to figure out how can we make sure that these people, yourselves included, are getting value. That, like that is what keeps me up at night around anything I do. And, and I need your help, all of you. Post a comment saying, hey, you ought to go listen to this call. It was good stuff. And if you want to try and you know, say something that, about it was great, that's great. But do it so that it inspires others to want to listen to the call because I think, and if you agree, these are topics that can change each of us individually, that can change our relationships. And I think we live in a world and a time and in a place and where we need, we need our community and the extended community 
to develop these skills. I mean, imagine if every meeting every one of us showed up in, um, everyone showed up with a level of respect for how everybody felt. You know, it sounds funny to say that, but if you sat through this call, you realize, man, we're going to create better outcomes. We know that. The science tells us that. So please help me in helping your peers in, in on the Best You Ever Coaching um, Facebook page or whatever page where we post this stuff. Please make a comment under the post for the call or something so that others are inspired to come listen to it um, because there's nothing that bothers me more than uh, folks that are paying for something and they're not being reminded or they're not aware of how to get the value out of it. So that's a request. Um, I am, since, since I can see there's still a bunch of you here, I'm just going to start selling stuff. All right, I was in sales first. So let's see how quickly you fall off, right, as I do my sales pitches. So, no, I, I have one sales pitch. Um, we have a, John Broman and I are running an event called the Speaker Trainer Experience coming up in March. And, and actually, I can see like half of you on this call are going to be there. So this is just as much about uh, getting you excited about what you've already signed up for. Um, but for those of you that are curious, if any of you speak professionally, you're in a business where you give professional presentations, or your ability to thrive and grow has to do with your ability to communicate in a professional setting. Um, or if you aspire to be a professional speaker or you already are one, or uh, if you're interested in understanding how to facilitate experiential learning environments, in other words, like what you saw at the best year ever, there's a whole science behind that. I mean, I could talk for 100 hours straight on all the tools and techniques behind everything that's being done there. Uh, a lot of it, you don't always notice it. Um, but I have spent a lifetime being professionally trained in facilitating uh, and turning ideas into experiential learning. John Broman uh, has become an award-winning professional speaker, and he and I together have created what we believe is one of the most unique and uh, really value-creating speaking and training, uh, training environments, and it's called the Speaker Trainer Experience. And uh, right now, so we originally committed to offering 20 seats to this. We have sold 20 seats. Uh, it's part of why there's not an aggressive promotion. But the hotel that we have, um, the room that we have, we actually just got a little bit more space. You know, have rooms you can pull back a wall. And we have more space that we can use. So I think we're going to open up somewhere between five and ten more seats. And um, the kind of folks that would be on a call like this uh, would be the kind of folks that would get value from that particular event. If, if, you're, if you're hearing this for the first time, you can go to speakertrainerexperience.com. Um, by the way, if you're going or you have no interest, we're running a webinar tomorrow where we're going to teach a whole bunch, uh, not tomorrow, Friday, about being exceptional at speaking, training, storytelling, how to organize content, how to, all, all sorts of stuff. We're going to give away some of our very best ideas on this on Friday at a webinar. And I think you can learn about that at speakertrainerexperience.com. I, should, I shouldn't sound so unsure of that, right? But... Um, We've sold most of the seats, so it's, we've kind of taken our foot off the gas. But uh, now that we know we're going to bring, probably we're going to let five to ten more people grab a spot. It did sell out way in advance last time. We're pretty sure we'll fill them up after our webinar on Friday. Um, go check it out, speakertrainerexperience.com. And, and I'll also say that that is the meeting where we're now looking to train individuals that uh, as we grow our businesses, we want to add these folks to our team to be certified trainers and speakers, which is uh, – that in and of itself is a, is a fun opportunity to think about, for me at least. So, uh, in fact, if you, have, you know, now that I'm on here for this long, I'm going into selling mode. So if you have questions about the speaker trainer experience, I, I would stay here and answer them. Um, I'll take one more question about anything at all. It's emotional intelligence, speaker trainer experience, um, you know, teaching your kids tricks, whatever, anything. And then I'm going to go. 
And if you want to do a question, I think you hit star six. All right, awesome. I think that's everybody. Let me see if I unplugged everyone. Oh, somebody had a question. Look at that, another question. There we go. Who's this? Oh, hey, it's me again, Sharissa. Sharissa, awesome. Hello. Hey. <laughs> um, so the question doesn't really have anything to do with the talk, but you open it up to anything. Um, I had posted a question on something that you said you wanted to chime in on about, and it was about um, about reaching out, about gaining more coaching clients and like kind of what the recruiting process is for that. Um, yeah. I've found that – I'll just give two seconds on like what's kind of been working for me, and I haven't been aggressive Please, at it, yeah. but it's been working. Yeah. Um, is posting – I just – I posted like two videos with like I felt really good content, and it kind of caught on fire without me trying. And I got like three coaching clients from that who were interested and just reached out. So my intention now is to have one video once a week and just make them short, like five to eight minutes, something like that. Um, and I haven't really been reaching out to people, like, in general, but I find that's been working. But I wanted to know your thoughts. Now, t thoughts specifically on? Regarding um, gaining more clients, adding more value, and just becoming – so letting people know that that's what I'm doing and there's opportunity for it. Yeah. Well, we could have like a, a, a very extensive conversation about this. I'll start by saying it sounds like what you're already doing is working. So um, uh, more of what works, right? Um, okay. But, yeah, so, you know, don't stop doing what's working. Figure out how to expand. Figure, what are the principles behind what's working, right? So you're, what you're doing is you're adding value by delivering content. So how can you exponentially multiply that impact, assuming you want to take on more clients? So um, mm -hmm. if you haven't yet, you probably want to have a central place, a blog or somewhere on a website where people can continue to find more info from you. Like if they find one video, can they go find more? Because every time you don't, you don't want your content to die. A lot of times mm -hmm. people put content out and then it just floats around in the ether. But, you know, so have one space where it can be at. And then, you, and then depending on the area that you're coaching in, you know, the, the fastest path today for a lot of folks to, is to tap into trust that has been built by others with their network, right? So get yourself interviewing on other people's webinars and podcasts um, as a way of building your audience, but also borrowing from the associated trust and respect that they have with their audience. So, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm stating things that you're very well aware of and probably already doing. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, if you think about the fundamentals of what's working is you're getting your content out there. So, you know, the question asked is how do you do more of that? Um, and the answers today are easy and simple. And so that's one starting place. But there may have been more to your question that I'm not addressing. Because I think originally you were curious about, you know, just I, if I remember – it was like, how do you sell somebody into private coaching yeah. when you actually have a yeah. prospect, right? Yeah. Do you yeah. want me to share a couple thoughts on that? Yeah, if you could spend just I – I don't want you to spend your whole time on it, but, yeah, if you could share a little bit on that, it would be awesome. Yeah, I'll, and this is something that I have a lot of experience with, so it's, it's, I'm happy to, and it's easy for me to give a couple quick ideas. Um, and there's still a handful of people listening, so maybe they're interested too. So cool. first of all, when I – 
when I first began a, doing private coaching, this was 12, 13 years ago, it was, um, you know, I was able to convince everybody to hire me as a coach. And, you know, my joke was I, I, I know how to sell coaching. I don't yet know if I know how to coach. But I was really good <laughs> at selling it. And, and, and a few of the things that helped me, so I had, like you, I had a sales background. But I realized really quickly to not do what others were doing to sell coaching. So in, if I've shared all this with you before, then you just to tell me or you'll have to hear it again. Nope. Um, You're good. But for one, yeah, the first thing is um, I made the choice that I am never going to offer a, quote, free consultation. Um, mm. it, 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 because the, as soon as I say, well, hey, I'll give you a free consultation, there's some things that imme- I, I create two immediate problems. Uh, maybe three immediate problems. One of those problems is I've just completely devalued, you know, my time. The, if I'm willing to say I'm going to sit here and do this for free, I, that is a devaluation that is irreversible, okay? The mm-hmm. second reason I would not say I'm going to do a free consultation, now everyone will laugh when they hear what I actually would do because I would still basically do the equivalent of a free consultation. I just wouldn't call it that. But the other reason is if I say, hey, I will give you a free coaching session, what happens is I am now indicating by saying that that the value of working with me is, is something that you're going to get based on paying me to trade my time. And, and this is the, kind of the crutch of coaching in general. But the point that I always wanted to make sure is so with somebody – see, I was interested from a business model perspective and from my own personal fulfillment. If I was going to be in coaching, I didn't want a client for two months. To me, it took that much time mm-hmm. just to understand how they ticked, right? So I eventually yeah. realized I want clients who start for a year. So I really quickly mm. – and my first clients, I'm like, yeah, no contract, month to month, watch how good it goes. <laughs> and I had people who they'd tell me every call for eight weeks, like, you changed my life, and then they'd fall off the face of the earth. I'm thinking, man, we were just getting going. So I, I realized, I'm like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. It's going to be one year minimum. And, and by the way, that fit my – how I wanted my life to go. It had you know, this was me. It might not be what you want to do. But uh, the other thing is from a business model perspective, I found out I was a better coach if I had everybody in a longer contract because I'm spending less time going out and getting clients and more time learning how to be a good coach. Mm. So uh, the other thing I did is I made sure that I didn't have all my clients on their contracts starting at the same time. So this is a fascinating learning that I had by accident is I – I thought, well, I'm going to have everybody, you know, January 1, I'm going to make all their contract line up with the calendar year. And the first time I did that, I got to November and I woke up one day and I'm like, you know what? I just realized that I could literally lose all of my income in 45 days. So, um, you know, so then I had to go into this, you know, how do I convince people over the next 45 days to stay with me and some renew, some won't. But one of the things I learned from that for me is I like to stagger when their contracts start and end. So, um, because I never wanted the pressure of I've got to renew everybody at once. That's just I, – it, it, it happened one time. I didn't want it to happen again. Um, okay. So let me go back to, you know, instead of a free consultation, what I would do is I'd say, look, I, um, I have very specific parameters for who I believe I can add the most value to. And um, part of my process for uncovering if someone is the right person for me to work with and for them to uncover if I'm the right coach is for us to have a couple of interviews. So I'm totally reframing it. And what I would do, mm-hmm. and what I would do is I'd say we're going to have at least one conversation and, and maybe one or two more, 
sometimes we have one interview and, and both parties realize this is a good fit. Sometimes we need to have one more conversation. So what I'm doing there is I'm kind of leaving it all open, and that buys me a lot of flexibility in the selling process. But usually what I would do, Sharissa, is before I would even have that interview, I would have a questionnaire or an assessment, and I'd have people fill it out, and I would try and filter it so I'm not even having this conversation if they don't meet minimum mm. parameters for me. The mistake I made as an early coach is if they're willing to talk to me, I'll talk to them. The problem <laughs> is, like, I, I would, so I would have a questionnaire, an assessment that says, you know, what are your aspirations? Um, where do you want to get value from me? Uh, where do you, where do you think I can give you value? Um, what has your coaching, have you coached with others before? What, it, why, what did you get from it? What did you not like? What would you like from me as a coach? Um, you know, my coaching ranges from X dollars for an investment to this much per year. Uh, is that an amount that's going to cause you, that is going to be a distraction for you? Is it going to cause distress? Because if it is, we respectfully should not connect, right? So I'm doing a lot of filtering in writing. And what that does is it's kind of changing the energy where it's, I'm not selling them, they need to sell me. And then, mm. so if they fill that out and I like it, so then it's like, okay, let's have an in-person interview. Um, I'll ask a lot of questions. And, you know, throughout the questions, I might tell my history and I might, to build my credibility and earn the right and all that, um, I might tell them about my style of coaching. But I'll ask a lot. And then what I'm doing, Sharissa, during these interviews is I am giving the very best possible advice I can ever give. I am literally giving them the best coaching I can give, but I'm not calling it that. Because mm -hmm. if I call it that, then I'm, then I'm pigeonholing myself into them thinking, well, you know, I have to decide right now. Because I want them to feel like, hey, the, the real value, this is what I believed and found to be true, is over time. And so all my stories of clients I worked with, because that's part of selling, is you want to have three core stories. And with every story you tell, you want to start with, hey, you know, the client, you know, initially they weren't sure if this would work because they had these hesitations and you want to be listing the same hesitations that person has. Um, but then here's what happened is here's what they learned and here's what they got from this. And it, at the six-month mark, here's what had happened in their life and at the 12-month. So all my stories are reflecting massive success over periods of time to help to mm -hmm. kind of directly and indirectly paint that picture of what I want, Right. So, and I know you have enough stories like that that you can use. So let me just um, stop for a second there. And Oh, actually, let me give you one other tip yeah. as to how you structure your coaching. So uh, how are, let me ask you, if you're willing to share in front of 10 other strangers um, specifics or generality, like how do you structure it, dollars for what amount of time? Sure. So um, initially, so I ha one thing that I need to do as soon as possible, because I already have – I've already gained clients, but one thing I haven't done is created a contract, so that's something I need to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I will always do a one-hour first, you know, one-hour like deep dive call um, to sort yep. of get the fundamentals down, get to know them better. That's two forty-seven, and then following that, I'll do two thirty-minute calls, and it's two forty-seven a month for that hour. But it's separated into two thirty-minute calls. Okay, great, great, wonderful. So it's a six-month so commitment. Yeah. Okay, great, great. So you've got a framework that you're starting with. That's great. So I'll share a thought with you about the economics of coaching and how you offer it and structure it. And there's a lot to think about here. So for one, um, and, and what I want to be very careful of is, you know, I don't want to presume what all of your aspirations are with coaching. And what I mean by that is for some people, 
coaching is a, it's a labor of love. Like for me, I have, so I have all these different revenue streams and projects and clients, and I, I'm very clear which ones are a labor of love. In other words, you know, which ones am I doing not because of the, it's not the economics, right? Um, yeah. And so you have to, you have to decide on that. If coaching, if, if you want it to be a, an economic engine for you, if you want it to, if, and you want to make more and more money, then that has to be built into who you're trying to attract and how you're structuring your fees, right? So and without asking you to get into what your priorities are, because I see there's still a lot of people listening, let me just share with everybody, what do you do if it is that you want to make more money? Because oftentimes that's the case, right? And Teresa, mm-hmm. we don't even have to get into where does it fall for your priorities. But something to consider is if you're interested in um, continuing to elevate your fees and your income for this as a business, you want to keep in mind that um, who you help, right, has a lot to do with what, what is rational to charge them to help them. So and some of this is really obvious, but sometimes we have to be reminded of this. Like if I'm helping, if I'm helping who they're, someone whose average income is 50000 well, I, I, don't, I don't even – you know, I don't want, I'm not going to feel good asking them to pay more than a certain amount per month, whatever that is, 200, 500, whatever. Cause it's just, it's not, to me, it's not, there's a point at which it's not right. Right. So yeah. now if, if the, if the kind of person I want to help, you know, if their aspiration or their trajectory is they're going to earn a hundred thousand or 200 or a million, right. Something like that. Well then what I can charge, I can adjust that accordingly and appropriately and ethically, right? Now, what you have to be careful of is if you, if you start serving different types of clients, you want to be careful about charging different amounts because there is an ethics issue here. In other words, mm-hmm. if you have three clients and you're charging them three different amounts, uh, and you could call it an ethics issue, you, you call it a business problem. If the three of them are having lunch, <laughs> they go, well, <laughs> wait a minute, right? So one of the things I was always careful of is um, – is I would document, even if it was just an internal document, how do I decide what I'm charging? And an easy way to do it is based on revenue of someone's business or their income or, you know, or the size of their impact that I can measure that I'm making so that you have a rationale behind why you're charging a different amount to a different type of client. And by the way, charging a different amount for a different type of client is a normal practice in the consulting and coaching world. But what a lot of people don't do is they're not thoughtful about making sure they're rationalizing why they have different amounts. Um, you want it so that if anybody ever questioned you, you could look everybody in the, in the eye and give them the answer, and they can at least, they have to accept some level of your explanation, right? So okay. um, here is a thought on, on, so a lot of this is philosophical, but on just technical structuring your coaching, I found that there is a, um, there's kind of a, there's a threshold that everyone has financially. And for a while, the types of folks I was coaching I was charging one thing, and I eventually realized, wow, they're all willing to actually pay a little bit more. And one of the things I found is that I could improve my economics and keep them equally as happy by charging more but giving away less of my time. So, like, when I started coaching, I think I was charging somewhere around 500 bucks a month for four calls a month. And then I quickly realized, for me, that was a bad business model. And so I started, as I took on new clients and then renewing prior clients, I changed it to 500 bucks for two calls a month. And then it eventually became 500 for one call. And then today, you know, it's multiples of that for one call if I'm doing it. Um, but keep in mind that oftentimes 
you don't want people thinking about, I'm paying for this much of your time. You're better mm-hmm. off if you just have them thinking about, I'm investing in coaching, not it's this much for this much time. Um, because I found eventually that I could have clients where if I said it's four calls a month and it's 500 bucks, or if I said it's one call a month and it's 500 bucks, they're just thinking in their head, I want help and what's my economic threshold? They're not thinking, well, I want four calls, not three or not two or not one. And what I have to do is make sure I'm good enough as a coach that I deliver enough value that, that, I, that everyone on both sides of the coin feels good at the end of that call, right? And if they do and they're getting that much value, then that's great. If, I don't, if I'm not seeing that, then I've got to be careful, right? So I just want to point that out, that as you're evolving in the level of clients that you want to attract and how you're charging, uh, don't have conversations around time, right? I mean, at some okay. point you have to explain how much time, but you want to make it about – you know, look, it's when people work with me, they're spending between, you know, five and 10 grand. It's a five to $10,000 investment per year. And, uh, you know, they might be paying five grand if we're going to do one call a month, maybe 10 grand for two calls a month. Um, and, and I would, as part of your opening interview or assessment, you know, you can, you can help to guide them, not in spending more money, but in figuring out which is the smarter decision for them. And it was really, I think you want to go into this knowing that you're going to be able to sell as many people into coaching as you want. So what you don't want is to have a bunch of clients that are stressed because they're overpaying. You'd rather talk to them less and have them not stressed about the money until you've helped them to make more money and then they can invest more in the coaching. Okay. So if I understand clearly what you're saying, so like, because I am running into that, um, I feel like I maybe have to tap into like a different uh, market of people who would want to work with me. Um, but there's, there is a lot of questions around like, oh, well, this is when I could pay this and then moving forward, it would be okay type of thing. Um, and that also is a little unsettling with me because I'm like, well, I don't want this to be, you know, if this is going to be challenging, if this is going to be like stressful for you, I, you know, it probably isn't a good idea, but they're like so anxious that they're willing to do it. Um, which is cool, but like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be the cause of someone's financial strain even though I'm confident that I can help them make more. So if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying, um, John, is to charge less for, like, less amount of time, so maybe, like, a 30-minute call once a month instead of an hour. Is that what I'm, is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, kind of? I'm sharing my what I did as a coach. I want to be careful, though, because – for me, I, my method of coaching, I, I found I could deliver a lot of value pretty quickly. So I was okay having calls that might be 30 or 40 minutes compared to when I first started an hour long, right? One yeah. of the things I'd encourage you to do is if you're going to have calls that are 30 minutes or less, it, it, unless, you're, unless or until you're at the point where you know you've got the skills to really help them quickly, um, it's a good idea to have people give them a simple way of preparing for the call so that you can move further faster during the call. The other thing okay. that I do, Sharissa, is during what you call, you know, kind of your opening conversation or your assessment or, or what I do for my interview, is I always treated that interview like a coaching call. And so one of the things I would ask them is I'd say, hey, I'd be curious, what's going really well in your world and what's challenging you? And one of the things I was looking for is what was their level of self-awareness? And what was their willingness to acknowledge something that needs help? Because if I found that they struggled to answer that just during my interview of, hey, what's going well or, and where, do you, where, where are you struggling? Where do you need help? Or what would you like your future to look like? If they really struggle with that, to me, that's a red flag to even take them on as a client. 
or it's at least yeah. an acknowledgement to me that I just have to be aware of that because there's some clients, you probably already have this, where you can go really far really fast and there's others who take too long. And I feel bad yeah. about that. And I've, I have fired many clients because, not because I didn't think I could help them, but I, I couldn't get them to be willing to be self-aware fast enough. And, you know, I don't, I don't have all the magic tricks to change people. So that's something to pay attention to when you're bringing someone. And you can give them coaching up front, like, hey, look, this is what makes this work is your willingness to acknowledge. And so prepare that before the call. And, and just to answer your question, uh, I, and this is a personal thing. I don't, this is not a one size fits all, but it is super important to me to not have clients where what they're investing into that relationship uh, is, is a source of stress for them, whether they know it or not. And so yeah. to me, I, in fact, I, I, I can tell you I have relationships right now where um, I had this yesterday. I had a situation where I told a partner of mine with one, one specific project, I said, look, I would like, I'd prefer to turn away a, a, a pretty significant amount of revenue. I don't even know what it would have been. It could be 10 or 20 or 30 grand only because the energy around that money was going to have some negativity. Like the, the money was going to yeah. come in and I said, no, 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 we should, we should pause. Because I believe in this, uh, I think Lynn Swift wrote a book called The Soul of Money, that, that how people feel around where they're putting their money really has an impact on the long-term outcome. So I, don't, I do not want to take money if there's any negativity around it that I can sense. I love it. Okay. Maybe we can, um, we can set up a call later and spend more time on that. Thank you so much. I, I wrote down, like, almost everything you said, I think. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good. Send it back to me or something. I'd love to hear it. Hey, this is awesome, right. Teresa. This is great. We'll, we'll talk again soon. I'll see you in March. Um, I'm going to go, everybody. Again, I have a request. If you can, uh, you know, please post something in the Best You Ever Coaching uh, Facebook page. Again, just to inspire others who are paying for this. This has everything to do with what I just said. I don't want people paying for this. I want them, and, you know, I can go on there. Hal can go on there and say, hey, it was a great call. But that means almost nothing compared to if any of you go on and say, hey, look, you guys got to listen to this. So please help us out so other people will come and listen to these calls. Appreciate you, everybody. Um, take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the podcast. So we, we want to know what were your big takeaways from this episode. Simply head on over to hellelroad.com slash 132 for episode number 132 and just leave a comment there on the show notes page letting us know what your takeaways were. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by going to hellelroad.com slash iTunes, clicking the little subscribe button, and then if you would, please leave a rating and review because rating and reviews truly are the best way for you to show your appreciation for the show because they help more people find out about the podcast and decide if this is the one for them. Well, all right, until next week, it's time for you to go out there, take action, and achieve your goals.
If you're looking to grow your business using podcasting, but don't have the time to edit the audio, insert the intro and outro, write up the show notes, post the episode to all the different sites, and do all of the ridiculous back-end work that's required, then you need yourpodcastguru.com, where you bring the content and we take care of the rest. We'll even co-host the show for you. Visit yourpodcastguru.com right now to explode your audience and crush it in the podcasting world.